I don't know what movie to watch this week. If only the goblins would tell me what movie to watch. Oh, did you hear that? All he has to say is, I wish the goblins would tell me the perfect movie to watch right now. It's not that hard, is it? Goblins, oh goblins, tell me what movie to watch. Ah, would you listen to that rubbish? It doesn't even start with I wish. <sighs> I wish the goblins would show me the perfect movie to watch right now. Satirists, and welcome to Swords and Satire, the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art. I'm your dungeon manager, Jamie Mulkel, here with my musical co-hosts. I'm Jack, a wallworm that appreciates a nice cup of tea. You should come over and try some sometime. Can we come and meet the missus? <laughs> of course. And I'm Chelsea Hollowell, a big lug of a friend who just wants to make her friends happy. Chelsea just, friend. Yeah, just like Ludo. <laughs> Chelsea friend indeed. <laughs> well, this week we have a very exciting episode for you. It is a patron poll winning episode. We asked our patrons to vote on their favorite Jim Henson or puppet filled film for uh, what episode they'd like us to do. And the winning movie, if you haven't already guessed, was 1986's Labyrinth, directed by Jim Henson and starring David Bowie, Jennifer Conley, Toby Froud, and the voices of just a bunch of people from the Henson workshop, including Jim's son, Brian. Uh, this movie was also executive produced by George Lucas. The screenplay was written by Terry Jones of Monty Python fame. And the dance choreography was done by, let me look at my notes here, Gates McFadden, Dr. Crusher from Star Trek The Next Generation. But before we get too deep into the movie, I think Chelsea can probably uh, give us a summary based on her ancient ancestral memory. <laughs> That's right. So, Labyrinth follows the adventures of a spoiled small-town girl. Wait, I thought this was a movie about a goblin king. <laughs> and she was his... just a small-town girl living in a lonely world. Ah, I see. I thought it was about a goblin king and his tremendous bulge. <laughs> His his bulge could have been a, its own character in the movie. What do you mean could have been? <laughs> so she kind of seems, Sarah kind of seems like a spoiled girl from a small town. Kind of seems like it because she is. But we realize going through that perhaps she's just lashing out because of this deep wound she feels from missing her mother. Her mother is no longer in her life anymore for one reason or another. We'll get into that later. And 
She seems to identify with her mother's creative spirit. We see posters on her bedroom wall that her mother was an actress of some ilk. And so she seems to grab, Sarah seems to gravitate to that creative storytelling uh, aspect of her mother. And you could identify with her feelings of feeling trapped by the norms of a small town and the colloquial ways of her middle class parents. <laughs> Brutally middle class. Like yeah. achingly, painfully middle class life. So she wants a life of magic and adventure. And she's always living in her head and in her imagination. And one night when she is forced, quote unquote, apparently she agreed to it or whatever. <laughs> um to watch her little brother while her parents go out on a date. How cruel. God, um, they are so inconsiderate. <laughs> um, she can't stand his crying anymore. I mean, God, a baby. I mean, what could he want out of her anyway? I mean, what does she have to give him anyways? Nothing. Yeah, she doesn't have a lot of emotional depth. No. <laughs> Uh, she wishes for- I think we get more emotional depth from her dog. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> Merlin. Merlin. Merlin the dog. Great name for a dog. Or from Lancelot the teddy bear. Very expressive Soulful teddy bear. eyes. Oh, I know. You just lose yourself in those teddy bear eyes. <laughs> in those button eyes. <laughs> yeah. So she wishes for her little brother Toby to disappear. And suddenly- all these goblins surround her, and Jareth, the Goblin King, shows up in her house and promptly obliges her and makes her little brother disappear. Sweet deal. And then she's kind of like, oh, fuck, what did I do? And she realizes she can't leave it this way. She has to go get him. She doesn't even try to explain, like, any logic of, oh, my parents will get mad at me. Or I mean, do, you uh, think, do you think Jareth would have cared? No. <laughs> yeah. She just kind of suddenly realizes what a terrible thing she did and that she has to make it right. She learns the most important lesson that anyone in a middle class existence will ever learn. Caveat emptor. The buyer beware. <laughs> when you make a deal, it's, it's you know, it's an as-is deal. Well, yes. So she is so adamant that she must have her brother back that the Goblin King strikes a bargain with her. And he tells her that she has 13 hours to recover Toby from the Goblin Castle at the center of the labyrinth. Ominous. Or he's going to stay in Goblin Town with Jareth forever. In classic fairy tale fashion. Yeah. What if the baby would have preferred staying with David Bowie? I thought of that. Kind of sad, really. I know. She didn't give that baby any choice. Yeah. No consent. Um, so as she's f trying to find her way through the labyrinth and meeting up against frustrations and challenges of different types, she finds, finds various friends along the way and doesn't realize it at first, but she's beginning the healing process for losing her mom and coming to terms with growing up. And she 
learns many valuable lessons that will go over and, and fights against the goblin army as she's reaching the castle. So that's kind of a fun zany scene. And then as they make it to the castle and she's going to face Jareth, she tells her friends she has to face him alone. And that's just because it's the way it's done, you know? I mean, that is fairy tale law. Yes. Even though the entire movie is more or less about, like, coming together and using cooperation and friendship to solve your problems, in the end, she still uh, demands to face Jareth alone. Well, sometimes you need to just find your own power from within, you know? That's fair. So she does go to face him. She finds herself in an M.C. Escher painting. Uh, she sees Toby. She's trying to go after him. Jareth is trying to entice her the entire time and distract her, but she just keeps running away from him and running towards Toby and then takes a leap of faith. Literally. And, uh, ends up breaking the whole goddamn world. And <laughs> God, this kid just ruins everything she touches. <laughs> She floats down to a level where Jareth is standing, and he looks like half man, half goblin, half owl. <laughs> yep, that's about right. That that math. Those proportions out. work out. Yeah. And um, he's trying to entice her again, and it's another trap that she's having to face. And he tries to say that he's going to give her all the power he wants, and he will be her slave if all she has to do is do what he says. Hmm. Now, hold on a second. Sounds like a cage made out of gold. But it's still a cage. Yep. And then she realizes at the end that he has no power over her. And as Jack pointed out, he said, has an aw fuck face on when she says that. And all of the illusion dis starts to disintegrate around her, and she finds herself back in her home. Toby asleep safe in bed, and her parents come in, and she's basically like, I don't need any of my childish toys anymore, except my imaginary friends. Sometimes they're still cool to hang out with. Yeah. No toys, just imaginary friends. Yeah. And that's about the end. She has a party in her bedroom, and also perhaps in her head. The end. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to have a lot to get into. Yeah. So why don't we move on to the delve? This is The Delve, where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, and lore of Labyrinth. Well, guys, a lot to talk about in this movie. I think it's probably not a bad idea, though, to start at the beginning. And by that, I mean the beginning of life. And by that, I mean the beginning of Sarah's life with her mom. That's right. So there's a, a gap in Sarah's life, and we assume that it has something to do with somehow being disconnected from or having lost her mother. Now, the movie doesn't give us any clear, solid answers. And I think that having watched this movie so many times, we all have like our headcanon version of what's going on. So I think we should kind of delve into a little bit of this stuff uh -huh, and talk about what we think is going on with the theme of Sarah's 
absent mother. Yeah, and so this is basically the lore of the movie is all the things we see in her bedroom that are clues for the adventure she's about to go on in the beginning of the movie. Yes, and there's even a picture of David Bowie's face in a, like, theater, like, playbill cutout, so it seems like... With her mother. Well, we don't know that. It's the same woman that she has pictures of all over her room, and she we know that she's living with her father and her stepmother, so it's kind of... It, you could read it in there anyway. It's a context clue. It's something that could be read into the text of the film. Sure, absolutely. So, but it opens up a lot of questions. Did her mother leave her father for this dirty theater type? <laughs> for the... Uh, did her mother leave her father for this scoundrel theater fellow uh, who is David Bowie's character? Did something else happen? Did her mother pass away? What's going on here? And we also see an, a figure of the Goblin King on her desk, too, which is David Bowie. And it he's wearing the same exact costume that Jareth is wearing later on. Yes. I know that as a fairy tale, this movie is contractually obligated to have an absentee mother. Right. But I think we should really get into kind of exploring what that means, both in the historical context of the film and within the narrative of the story itself. So there's a picture of what we're assuming is the mom with David Bowie, right? Mm-hmm. And that might be one of the few pictures that Sarah has of the mom. And she might not know who that person is who is wearing David Bowie's face, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> she might not know who that is. And so if what Jamie kind of like you said is true, that the mom ran off to join the theater and just kind of abandoned her family, right? You know how those theater folk are. Yeah. That one <laughs> image of David Bowie could have been kind of the personification of like the theater life and kind of this idea of abandonment for her, right? Yes. And so at the end, when Jareth is saying like, oh, I'll let you do whatever you want as long as you just like are mine, right? That's kind of like saying like, oh, if you forget about everything else and you just focus on me, like running away from your life and following your imagination, you know, it'll be a good time. You're like kind of implying like your mother did it. Now you could do it too. Right. I, I wonder how much of this is kind of Sarah vicariously exploring her mother, what we assume are her mother's choices and yeah. reliving them. It is possible that her mother passed away also. Um, I think that is the reading I always took when I watched the movie. And see, I always saw it as. She, that his her mother probably left her father, who's kind of a staid, typical middle class kind of milk toast guy. Her mom wanted, you know, an actor, somebody expressive, a lover. Yeah, I think to support the idea that David Bowie's character as the Goblin King is kind of this analogy for escaping reality into your imagination. Uh, in the last line she says to him, you know, the iconic line, you have no power over me. 
I think that's like her saying that she has control over her own mind rather than her mind controls her, you know? Right. She grows up a lot in this film. Yeah, that's one of the main um, themes of the movie is coming of age and growing up. But also as Jack is talking about, and Jamie mentioned, fantasy as a coping mechanism uh, for loss or some kind of trauma in your ordinary reality. Those are both uh, two of the main themes of the movie, and they have a lot of interplay between them. Do you want to delve into some of that? Yeah. So in the beginning of the movie, she is being quite childish in her reaction to res responsibility. And Agreed. Um, she's not showing a great amount of emotional depth. But as she realizes the repercussions of her actions are going to be very dire... She kind of starts to develop a level of emotional maturity, which is part of her quest to find Toby. And she develops a lot of emotional maturity along the way through dealing with challenges and overcoming them and through the help of her friends, too. Right. Yeah. I mean, she is kind of able to learn to reject materialism in favor of commitment to others. I mean, she's. She had a hard time in the beginning of the movie committing to her little brother, who I assume is a half-brother. Yeah, probably, I think so. Probably the child of her father and her stepmother. That's the impression I get. Maybe think. to her a symbol of this change that's happened between her parents or, or whatever falling out or loss of her mother. Toby is kind of this like living embodiment of it. And she's resentful of him. It seems like she doesn't, maybe doesn't have any, a lot of friends because yeah. she's in the beginning of the movie, she's playing in the park alone, which I mean, that's fine. But I mean, it, we don't necessarily think of, I'm saying 14 to 16 year old kids playing make believe alone in the park. That seems like something that is typically something that in movie code would be a lonely child. Right. Maybe they're in a new town who, you know, we don't know the entirety of the story, but she maybe she doesn't know anybody. She hasn't made the right connections with people. As she goes through the movie, though, we see that she's empathetic. We see that she's kind, that she wants to help the people she meets inside of the labyrinth world. She's capable of all of these complex emotions and showing loyalty to others and bravery. It just I think that's why I. That's why I mentioned before that I think she's just kind of lashing out and she has experiencing kind of arrested development because I feel like she never got healed the wound of losing her mother, however that happened. Right. And I think one of the most important scenes in the movie that unlocks a lot of the codes for what's going on is when she is brought into the kind of facsimile of her room after she eats the cursed peach and there's the for lack of a better word i'm going to call her the trash lady who's this puppet woman who's got just all of her worldly possessions on her back Please, like a turtle Jamie, she's called the junk lady sorry i don't want to be <laughs> i don't want to be offensive to anybody the junk lady <laughs> is this this character who has all of their possessions on their back ah, and get off my back <laughs> and seems to be obsessed with material goods and is trying to entice Sarah 
by saying, look at these toys, you know, these are the things that you should care about. Don't worry about whatever it is you're supposed to be forgetting, which is her brother. Just play with your toys and just shut up and be a good consumer and everything will be fine. You don't have to worry about connections to other people. And we do get to see her having a few sly or devious looks on her face when Sarah isn't looking at her. So it's clear that she's trying to trap Sarah in this room. That's Like you said, that's the facsimile of her real world room. Right. So when Sarah fully rejects the idea of materialism and gives up the, quote, childish things, yeah. that's when she's able to grow and see that it's her connection to others that matters. And it is repeated from the beginning of the movie because at the start of the movie, she's angry that her stuffed bear Lancelot is in Toby's room. At the end of the movie, she gives Lancelot to Toby a passing of the torch, if you will. And when she goes back into her bedroom after that in the ordinary reality, near the end of the film... She's starting to put away the pictures of her mom and some of her toys and stuff. And it kind of, re it's just another scene to reinforce this idea that she's becoming emotionally estranged from her childhood items and that you have to kind of give up these childish things to be able to pass into adulthood and you have to kind of give up fairy tales. But she still, she still keeps her connection to it, which I really liked that they kept that in the movie at the end when she tells her friends, sometimes I still need you every now and again. And she doesn't totally give up her connection to her imagination and to the fairy realm. She she keeps that little bit there to kind of keep that creative spark alive. I, I liked that bit. Yeah, me too. I think you're totally right. It is her staying in touch with that creative side and her imagination, which is really nice. But... I still stubbornly believe that at the exact same time, it's that ideal of her imagination. It's also real. And she has goblin friends that come visit her in real life. And David Bowie is an owl wizard man who visits her. And why can't they both be true? Yeah. They can. I, I want to believe both at the same time. Oh, there, there's yeah. no doubt in my mind. Yeah. She was in the labyrinth. Yeah. We saw it. <laughs> what more proof do you need yeah i mean he is watching her in the beginning and flying over their house at the end he is the first and last thing we see in owl form so he's actually the main character of the film if you think about it and yeah i think you're right i think there is something to what jack's saying because of that i think your point about her kind of learning what friendship is was really good as part of her quest to mature, because she values friendship really highly. Yes. And I think that might come from someone who hasn't experienced it very much. And a lot of the characters she interacts with in the movie also haven't experienced it. Like, Hoggle doesn't really know what it means to be a friend to someone. Yeah, he's having a hard time. And he's also having to balance his responsibility to this cruel, tyrannical ruler and then his feelings of connection to an actual another person. And then and then later on a group of people. And this these friends in the labyrinth could be the embodiment of her some of her emotions that she's trying to understand and her kind of becoming friends or familiar with them and understanding herself a little bit better. That's another way to read it. Yeah. 
Hoggle could kind of be like her fear. Yeah, I mean, Hoggle literally points out that he lacks any pride and you cannot shame him because he is a coward and he knows it's about himself and he is comfortable with that. It is this acceptance of fear. It is not... You know, the movie changes so many of our usual themes, like in a lot of the movies we watch that are about, like, strength of arm and fearlessness. That's not how Sarah wins. She doesn't defeat Jareth by martial prowess. She's cunning. She's clever. She pays attention to her environment. She starts to kind of come out of this shell of... She starts to take off these blinders of this suburban life she's living and she uses her cleverness to solve riddles. She figures out how to answer that riddle about, you know, the one person who always lies and the one person who always tells the truth. She figures out how to get Hoggle on her side because she sees that he likes jewelry and she has a plastic bracelet that she can give him. She's able to overcome things through her own mind and her knowledge. And she even defeats Jareth by remembering a story and by reciting the story that she remembered. Not and it's through, a battle of the wills. Yeah, and it's not through fearlessness. It's through accepting her emotions and, her, and herself for who she is. Yeah, and, you know, there's a really important scene right after Hoggle gives Sarah the cursed peach where he is saying... He he is uh, chastising himself for harming his only friend. Mm-hmm. Like, he is seeing the repercussions for his actions immediately. Right. And and regretting it. Like, wishing that he hadn't kowtowed to Jareth because he had this person who cared about him, who liked him for who he was. Yeah. And then he th- he thought he threw it away. And it's when Sarah forgives him... It's actually a really important scene right after this, too, where Hoggle comes back and saves them from the giant goblin mech knight. He exhibits bravery without really being aware of it. He re- he kind of throws away his cowardice just to save his friends because he's so sorry for what he's done. So he's not naturally brave, but he's willing to be brave if he thinks his friends are in danger. Right. It's a selflessness that he exhibits because he learns that the value of friendship along with Sarah. And I'm kind of thinking, like, what could we say that her other friends embody? Like, I would say that Ludo is her sense of loyalty. I was just about to say that. Perfect. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I think Sir Didymus is kind of her own... Honor. Honor, yeah. I mean, that's pretty on the nose. And he's got such a good nose. It's true. She also wants to be a hero, too. Yes. Which is kind of what Jareth is getting at in his final speech as well. Which I'd love to mention real quick, to talk about that final scene. Let's get into it. Yeah, so I love that final speech he's giving to her when he's trying to convince her to stick around. Because it's kind of like the final scene where the villain reveals the plot, right? Yeah. And he's like, you know, Sarah, I've been really generous. <laughs> yeah. And, but I can be cruel, you know? And she's like, well, how have you been generous? You're the bad guy. And he's like, well, isn't that what you wanted this whole time? Yeah. You know, she she has all this fantasy stuff around her room. 
She's into the Arthur myths, you know, with she names her teddy bear Lancelot, her dog Merlin. It seems a lot like she wants to be the main character of her own story, right? Something I think a lot of people can relate to. At the beginning of the film, she's in the park rehearsing the lines of the main character of a book she likes, right? Called The Labyrinth. Yeah, and I like you were saying, she's sick of her ordinary life. And she wants to kind of be the main character of this fantasy, like you were saying, Chelsea. She wants this fantastical life. Yeah. And so when she wishes that Toby would be taken away, she that's kind of the perfect gateway for Jareth to take it away so that she can live this fantasy she's been asking for. And in a way, it's kind of to show her, like, like what you said, Jamie, be careful what you wish for, but... The thing is, yeah, she wanted there to be a bad guy to thwart, and he was like, I was that bad guy for you, and you wanted this fantastical world. I made, a like, this labyrinth, which is pretty awesome and perilous, and you had, like, this crazy, cool, totally magical, whimsical adventure. I gave that to you, you know? I provided you with friends who taught you many lessons. <laughs> I did pretty much everything you ever wanted. So how how am I not being generous, right? Now, is this a classic example of gaslighting? Where, like, she has gone in, she's done all these things herself, he is taking credit for it. I mean, it's a very familiar theme that we're seeing a lot in, in politics today, too, which is somebody taking credit for something that they are not actually responsible for. I don't, I wouldn't read it that way. I think it has more to do with uh, the classical, like, trickster god more than that. Okay. Um, so this is an intentional choice that he's making. He's more like a genie or something where he's giving somebody exactly what they wish for and um, it's not exactly what they really wanted. Well, I will say I've never had a friend like him. <laughs> nice. But... Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And in the part where he's saying, love me, do what I say, and I'll be your slave, right? I think that is definitely the trickster god thing for him to say, because it seems to me like he's already kind of a slave to her imagination. Right. It also mirrors something that Sarah says in the beginning to her about her stepmom and father. Obviously incredibly melodramatic response that she says they treat her like a slave. And then later on, he echoes that sentiment of, I will be your slave. Yeah, nice. So in some ways, Jareth represents a side of Sarah too. Yeah. Or, or, or a part of her that she sees kind of embodied through the minor bits of labor that she has to do for her parents and this idea of a forced commitment to something. Well, it, what you're really getting at is it's the part of her that feels trapped. Right. Yeah. And um, it could even be like her embodiment of her imagination, too. It's It's powerful, but it's really kind of trapping her inside her own head. And um, like we said, we're reading it two different ways right here. You know, the way where it's something going on in her imagination and then the way where it's really going on. So I'm just kind of like 
posing the other side right now. But yeah. Yeah. That kind of ties back with everything we've been saying. If Jareth is the embodiment of her imagination, and maybe he represented that as well, like we kind of talked about in the mom's photo, right? Yeah. That he he embodies this imaginative life and her imagination. He's basically like, stay with me, you know? That's kind of what he's getting at the entire film. Like, he is kind of trapped in this labyrinth, right? And he wants Sarah to be there with him. And I think a big part of the plot is him being afraid of, like, her not caring about what happens to or like around him not caring about him yeah you know that's a really great point and i'm glad you mentioned that because i have i don't remember where i heard this so uh if anyone knows what i'm citing here please uh send us an email tweet at us let me know where who first posed this but i have heard the theory that jareth might be a grown child who was taken by the previous Goblin King who grew up here because he's clearly an outsider, right? Yeah. He is the Goblin King, but he is... Not a goblin. Not a goblin, at least that we know. And he seems to have some... He seems to be kind of stuck there as much as Sarah. I mean, is he also trapped in this labyrinth and unable to truly leave? He can project himself out into the world he might be able to enter Sarah's world in animal form, but we're not sure that he can truly stay outside of her world. A lot of it has to do with illusions, for sure. There are things that shift and change all the time. It, the whole thing is kind of an illusion. Just like reality. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you guys think? Is Jareth just as much a prisoner in the labyrinth as he tries to make Toby and Sarah be? I can come to see that. I always assumed that the other goblins were kids that Jareth had taken. Oh. And when the 13 hours was up, they became goblins. Oh. Yeah, I think actually Jareth says something like that will happen to Toby now that you mention it. Hmm, I'm not I sure. I never paid too close attention to he, that. He does say that in nine hours and whatever number of minutes, you will be mine. Yeah. But see, that also gets to another interesting twist that happens towards the end of the movie. In the entire beginning, Jareth makes it sound like it's all about Toby. But later on, he admits that he's been doing this to get Sarah's attention. To entrap Sarah, not Toby. Right. He wants her to stay with him. Toby was a, a means to that end. Right. But for the, the beginning of the movie, he is emphasizing that he wants the child to be, you know, to be raised in the Goblin Kingdom. So is that a error on the screenwriter's part? Is it just flow into the magical realism? Or is he an unreliable narrator? Wait, how? Because in the beginning, he says that it's all about Toby. He wants Toby to be his child to raise but at the end of the movie he says that he was doing this all for sarah to oh, get no. her to stay with him i mean this is opening up a lot of questions because you're welcome if she didn't get to toby what would happen to her he never says what would happen to her would she be stuck in the labyrinth too possibly he never says that seems to go in line along with what he says towards the end of the movie what i think it does 
you know, it's that golden cage. He definitely wanted her to stay in the labyrinth. Right. He did put her in an oubliette. And she never asked what would happen to herself either. She was so focused on saving her brother. She never thought to negotiate or stipulate what would happen to herself or if she would ever be free of it. Yes, she is dedicated to helping Toby and is very unconcerned with her own safety. Yeah. I mean, partly that that's a noble trait and it's partly the kind of overconfidence and hubris of youth at the same time. Which she kind of embodies throughout the movie. Yeah. She kind of needed it to get through the labyrinth, I think. Yeah, confidence in herself. Yeah. Uh, yes, I was thinking that too. At the same time that I was feeling a little critical of her over that, I also realized that if she didn't have that confidence, she never would have kept pushing. <laughs> yeah, because every single thing she came across was trying to change her mind, right? They were like, hey, stay here. Hey, you're going the wrong way. Like, you know. Yeah, exactly. Everything was trying to trick her, or they're, like, moving the arrows around that she marked, you know? Mm-hmm. And then it's only through her, like, stubborn, like, confidence that she's like, wait a minute, this is all bullshit. <laughs> yeah. I'm just gonna keep going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're right. It's so many different times that she keeps just pushing through all these obstacles because she just has this kind of almost irrational belief that she will make it through in the end. Yeah. And, and she's literally down to the minute. really what's driving her forward. And she wouldn't have succeeded at all if she had didn't have that. Yeah, if she had I hesitated mean, for even a second, she might have not made it. I mean, I don't want to discount, like, the help of her friends. I'm just, we're talking about her confidence right now, so. It's true. Also, it did bite her in the butt one time, I think, especially, anyway, when Jareth is like, so what do you think of my labyrinth? And she's like, oh, it's a piece of cake. And he's like, oh, yeah? And then he winds the clock forward, like, two or three hours. Yeah. yeah, dick move. Let's up the stakes a little bit then. And it's like, oh, Sarah. That's not fair. <laughs> you keep saying that. I wonder what your basis for comparison is. Yeah. <laughs> Great line. Yeah. Yeah. So, guys, I'd be remiss if I didn't touch on the theme that is just like sitting right here. And of course, that theme is class struggle. Go on. So. I mean, this movie kind of does it in such a overt way, it's almost hidden right before our eyes. <laughs> Jareth, the Goblin King, the ruler, the aristocrat, the person in charge of everything, ultimate power. The goblins are in the throne room scrubbing his boots while he sits there just languidly with this bored expression on his face. He's just looks so over everything. Meanwhile... The goblins represent this oppressed underclass. They are completely living in fear of Jareth. But Sarah comes, she is this middle-class avatar, and she disrupts the lives of all of these people around her. She interferes with everyone's jobs, but kind of teaches them these lessons about 
friendship and commitment. But, you know, everybody says like the the false alarms want to say, you know, oh, you are going the wrong way and all this. And, you know, when uh, Hoggle says, don't bother, you know, she's not going to be swayed by you. He's like, but the one of them's like, but it's my job. Like, what am I going to do? It's my it's the one thing I have in my life is to be spooky and ominous. Right. Sarah is this massive disruptor representing this kind of change from this powerful aristocratic class to this influx of this capitalist ideal. She's giving wealth to people. She represents this real change of lifestyle for the goblins. But again, the theme is a little muddied because part of the movie is also all about Sarah learning to reject those things. But at the end of the movie, she's kind of replaced this role for everybody because it's not just Hoggle and Didymus and Ludo who are there with her in her room. It is all these other entities that had up to this point been barring her way because Jareth commanded them to. Yeah. But now they are all wanting to be around her and wanting to be her friend. Mm-hmm. So she represents this change of class structure from this upper class rulership to this more moderate and egalitarian idealized capitalist view right. of the middle class being the kind of ideal state of being. Yeah. Which is a very 1986 theme to slapdash right in the middle of this kids movie to indoctrinate people into this idealization of suburban middle class life. But also, again, mixed metaphor with the importance of fantasy and imagination. I think you're definitely right. Spot on with a lot of it, except for one thing that I'm not so sure about. And that's that the goblins are afraid of Jareth. Okay. Because I think most of the subjects in the labyrinth are afraid of Jareth, except probably the goblins. And I think this might be one of the reasons why goblins are the transformed children. I could see Jareth being someone like Sarah, who agreed to stay. But I think the kids might be, the kids who are stolen might be turned into the goblins. And here's why. During the magic dance song, right, Toby is vibing with Jareth, right? He really likes him and he's... At, yeah. fir at first he looks at first he looks a little unsure. Yeah, but then they're dancing together, he's laughing, he's even participating in the song. And all the goblins right away when the king starts singing are dancing and singing along too, right? Yeah. And it seems like the goblins hang out around him, even though he's sort of like bored with what's going on. They're kind of waiting around trying to enjoy themselves. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it seems like Jareth, in my mind, is sort of like a cult of personality figurehead. Definitely. Where the goblins are like, what do you mean? Of course we follow him. He's the goblin king. He's Jareth, right? Yeah. He's the guy. <laughs> he's the and guy. So, yeah, he's the guy. Yeah, I think he's kind of closer to like a cult leader. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just look at just look at the bulge. I mean, you got to lead you got to follow that leader. It's true. Also, not everything that lives in the labyrinth is a goblin. There's a ton of stuff that lives in there. And all the goblins get to live in the center. 
at the castle, right? Yeah. yeah. That's like literal separation. The goblins are the direct people of the king of the labyrinth, so they get to be in the middle, right? And they're, they're so they're part of his army, and that makes sense. And they actually get homes and food and stuff like that. And they torment the people who live on the periphery. I mean, this is all part of the class theme. The people who live outside of the city where the castle is are like Ludo. And when we meet Ludo, he's being hung by the legs and assaulted by these goblins with these little monsters on, like, these little bitey monsters on sticks. Yeah. Didymus is been relegated to live in the, the, the bog of eternal stench and guard a bridge that nobody's ever going to cross. Yeah. He's given this pointless task, but he takes pride in it. Yeah, definitely. And to the point that the goblins might be previous stolen children, in the beginning, when they're getting ready to take Toby, they're, like, ready for it and waiting for Sarah to say the words, you know? They're very excited. Yeah, they're laughing and they're, like, peeking out, waiting for their, like, permission to do it. Because they've all been there before, and that's how they got to being what they are now. They do act and move around kind of like mischievous children. Yeah, Jareth could be this, like, trickster god, right? Taking kids to make them into his, like, changeling children. Kind of classic fairy or elf. Yeah, exactly. That's like a classic fairy tale, like you were saying. Mm-hmm. Before we move on, I definitely want to touch on one of the more uncomfortable themes of the movie. That is something that I think stands out pretty severely when you watch the movie in 2020 and that I think might be uncomfortable for some viewers. And that is this idea of this older male character who is kind of, for lack of a better word, conditioning this young girl to be with him, which is a very timely theme unfortunately as uh in the news and the media right now we're seeing a lot of examples of people who have been victimized in this way i think there's definite validity to what you're saying and i think the scene where she eats the drugged peach and starts having a hallucination is really the clear scene where that's happening because she's put inside of this floating crystal bubble, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's the ballroom scene where he's kind of singing this serenade. And like I think you guys saw, everyone else in the ballroom, it's a masquerade. Everyone is wearing all these kind of monstrous masks and Victorian outfits. They're all looking at Jareth, trying to get his attention, but Jareth is only paying attention to Sarah. And it's my headcanon that those are what the goblins would be, those people. Right. And in the bubble, that's they look like they're human selves, and those are the masks they're wearing over it, right? Yeah. And they all love Jareth, and they all want his attention, right? But Jareth is kind of 
you know, like you were saying, he mentions in the end that taking Toby wasn't the goal. The kids and the goblins aren't the end goal. It's just Sarah. And that's why he's paying attention to her in that ball. Right. He's trying to entrap a partner, maybe. Yeah, and I think that is a disturbing scene. I'm not the first person to point this out about this movie, of course. But, I mean, it is something that I think would be alarming to viewers, especially these days. There's another angle of it, and I don't want to make excuses for the movie having a, for lack of a better word, problematic element like this. But it is this idea that if this is happening in her head, this is a fantasy about, you know, a a, a partner or somebody who she kind of idolizes. You know, it, there's some evidence in the movie that Jareth is actually this actor or theater person who Sarah idolizes and is kind of imagining herself being with yeah i mean she it's kind of in that sense that was kind of the reading i took and i thought that he partly embodied her own sexual awakening and kind of fantasies around that i mean david bowie represents all of our sexual awakening (laughs) true but also in that picture with who could be her mom right what if the mom ran away with this David Bowie guy, or she thinks she might have? So that scene is kind of like maybe an imagination of how that sort of thing could happen. Like David Bowie is just there only looking at her, trying to steal her away, you know? Right, and this could be Sarah trying to process what happened, if that is what happened, that her mother left her father to be with this actor this could be part of her healing process is kind of trying to understand where her mother came from or where her mother made this decision. If that is the backstory that is accurate to the film. Yeah. I mean, there are multiple layers to what is going on between the two of them for sure. Because on the one hand, there are ties to the classic fairy tale and he's kind of like, a male fairy so in this way he's not really trying to condition her to be a sexual partner as in like an uncomfortable older male to female in human terms he's a fairy he's giving her a gift in the beginning he tries to give her one of the crystal balls in the beginning and taking a gift from a fairy um and food in the fairy realm is kind of like a contract right and um she does enter into another contract and usually it doesn't come out on the like side that would benefit the human. <laughs> right. So I mean but, I think um oh, and often like fairies in fairy tales were sexually alluring and the human in the story might kind of have a sexual experience with the fairy in right. the story. Um alluded to at least. Right. So they're kind of pulling from that and there is kind of like this attraction between the two of them or obsession. And I think that they're alluding to classic fairy tale with that. But as Jamie said, we can't ignore the other reading of it. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that it'd be alarming to viewers, and I, I think that's completely understandable. And at the same time, I think this is a movie that a lot of people really love and connect with. And I think that, you know, it is okay to process it in both ways yeah. or to view it in in ways where it's like there are elements of the movie that are troubling on you know on a surface reading or or even on a deeper reading but it can also be read in these other ways about how this is Sarah's imagination and Sarah's uh agency but we could also argue that that's problematic because this is you know filmmakers kind of justifying that type of behavior or those types of uh, stories and normalizing it for young girls. Right. So it's complicated and that's fine. Yeah, definitely. Personally, I've always kind of been aware that he was this older guy and this like teenage girl, but kind of like what Chelsea was saying, I've never really thought of him as like a human. So it's never, like, registered as being exceptionally bizarre to me more than anything else in the film. Right. At the end of the day, this is a movie with, uh, you know, goblins and um, monkeys in organ grinder outfits who change tiles around on the labyrinth floor and other fantastic elements. But that's not necessarily an excuse for some of the more troubling themes in it. So Right. It's a complicated movie. That's what I'm getting at. And Jareth is a complicated villain, which brings us to our next segment, Evil, Stupid, or Misunderstood. This is Evil, Stupid, or Misunderstood. The part of the podcast where we take a look at the principal antagonists of the movie and determine if they were evil or maybe they were kind of stupid. And if not either of those things, then maybe they were just misunderstood or maybe all three. So, guys, let's talk a little bit more about the iconic Goblin King, Jareth. So, for evil, stupid and misunderstood, I think he's handsome. Uh, I agree, yeah. The reason is his perfect face and his perfect body. And, <laughs> yeah. And his perfect hair. Yeah, and his hair. Too. Oh, yeah, right. And his I'm so stupid! His impeccable sense of style. Yeah. So there we go. Yeah. Good point. Let's yeah. move on. Oh, wait. <laughs> but wait, I have one more thing to say. Okay. I think maybe he could be misunderstood. Yeah. Right. Just because it's unclear whether or not he's a person or a projection <laughs> of her mind. Right. Yeah. You know, he helped her develop as a person really heavily. So, in a way, he was a force for a lot of positive change in her life. And that was kind of like his purpose and i don't think he was intentionally doing that but his drive was like to do what she wanted so i think just the way he executed it was very bad guy yes 
Although, you know, I'm glad you said that because you bring up an interesting point that I didn't mention in the last section that I actually think is important. Whether or not we read this as a story of this older male conditioning a younger girl or not, at the end, she rejects him. Yeah, and she she finds her own power within and tells him he has no power over her. And that's what totally breaks down all of the illusions. Yeah. So, I mean, and I, I think that, you know, it can be complicated when the whole movie we see, like, the, the, the parts that could be read as the conditioning, and then it's not until the end that the message gets flipped. But that is usually how stories like this are told. But it is, I think, important that the, the ending narrative point is that you shouldn't allow yourself to be controlled by somebody. You shouldn't be in relationships that require you to change yourself when you don't you know, want to make those changes, but that your friends are the ones who will appreciate the qualities of you that were always there. Yeah. Unless it it's changing in ways that inspire you to be your best self, you know. Exactly. She learned to be a better friend, but she didn't have to become, you know, anything too much different than who she started as. She was already clever. She was already well-read and knowledgeable and had a lot of wits and cunning and determination. We we've said like she's brave and single-minded loyal and loyal already um i agree with jack i i think in a lot of the different ways we can read it jareth is misunderstood because i it's hard to play talk about him as being evil if as jack mentioned she he's an embodiment of her imagination then he's playing a role right as as the opponent so he he can't really be called evil in that case either because he is playing up to his role and her expectations of him as he mentions at the end and if he is really this goblin king a, a being from the fairy realms he will have an alien mentality or intelligence to the way humans think and act and human based on human norms so it's we can't really know what logic or what is fueling his thinking so to call him evil would be reductive because it's just an alien intelligence that's fair and i mean i think Maybe there's a case for him not having the most well-thought-out plan, because if he really just wanted a friend, it seems like Sarah would have been happy to be his friend. So maybe he's a little bit stupid. Yeah, or, or just <laughs> a, just not thinking about things in the full context. Right, yeah. Yeah, I, I stand by that. All right, anything else you guys want to add? So he's handsome and misunderstood. Yes, yeah. exactly. All right, well then, uh, why don't we head over to the smithy? Welcome to the smithy. 
where we forge a rating for this movie from one to ten swords after we share an epic moment or feature from the film. Chelsea, do you want to give us your epic moment and your rating? Sure. My epic moment is when Sarah befriends Ludo and she takes the reading that things aren't always what they seem to giving somebody who looks rough on the outside the benefit of the doubt and seeing the the beauty within and they become friends and she gives him a chance and finds out that he's the kindest purest most loyal friend she could ever have oh yeah i love ludo he's probably my favorite character so um yeah that's my epic moment and I'm going to give this movie, man, I want to say 10 out of 10 just for nostalgia purposes and how <laughs> fun it is and how much fucking creative talent went into making it. So I'm going to stick with that. Yep, that's it. <laughs> 10 oh. out of 10. Uh, Swords. Cre crystal balls. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice. Good call. Floppy Sir Didymus wand swords? Or... <laughs> yeah. Crystal balls. All right. All right, Jack, how about you? Uh, your epic moment or feature and your rating from 1 to 10 crystal balls. Well, it matches my personal intro for this episode. My epic moment was when Sarah first enters the labyrinth and she's running around. She can't find an entrance and she collapses out of frustration she hears something say, hello, and then she turns and sees a little worm with a scarf there. It's, she's like, did you say hello? And she said, no. And the worm says, no, nah, I said hello, but that's close enough. <laughs> I love that line. And the worm is like, come inside and meet the missus. <laughs> <laughs> it keeps saying all this like stuff that's completely nonsensical just to really show you like things the second you enter the labyrinth. You know, they don't all seem possible or make sense. But the really, the primo line from the worm is when Sarah asks, you're a worm, aren't you? And then the worm responds, yeah, I'm just a worm. <laughs> Most important character in the film for me. Always been my favorite. Yeah. He seems to know the labyrinth pretty well, too. Yeah. Yeah. He knows things. A lot of little places for worms to crawl through the labyrinth. Yeah, it's true. Especially if your friend is with the fungus eyes. <laughs> but I totally love this movie also. I used to just put this movie on repeat when I was younger and watch it immediately after I finished it. Nice. I love pretty much every theme, even the uncomfortable ones, just because this movie is so unforgivably itself yeah, yeah. unforgivingly it's pretty great unapologetically Un or yeah unforgivably itself <laughs> and uh so i'm gonna give it 10 microphone scepters out of 10 nice what about you jamie well you know if i had to list a epic feature of this movie you guys gave your favorite characters i would have to say that my epic feature is sir didymus 
because he is amazing. But instead of the usual going into that, I'm going to give an epic memory. And and Jack's already touched on this. So um, pretty sure Chelsea introduced Jack to this movie when he was but a wee lad and uh, when he used to stay with us. And, uh, you know, we used to watch it, like he said, we would turn it on and Jack was probably five or six at the time. And as soon as it was over, he'd want to watch it again. And then as soon as it was over that time, he'd want to watch it again. And I mean, I must have seen this movie more than any other movie that I've ever seen <laughs> by now. And you know what? I I love this movie so much. I mean, not just because of what it is, but what it represents. It was always so fun. It was fun to have Jack over and to have him staying with us and to watch movies like this and to get to share this great fantasy stuff. And then look, all these years late all these years later, here we are making a podcast about these movies. And it's yeah. so great. And I love doing it with you guys. And this movie embodies that better than any other movie we've watched. Just because I've seen this movie probably more than any other film in existence. <laughs> Except maybe the Big Lebowski, but I think we've watched Labyrinth more. Or or um The Never Ending Story. Yeah. It's a it's a close tie with, with a lot have, of these. We're gonna have to do that one another time too. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so I'm giving this movie ten out of ten. Ten out of ten, just like you guys. That's a solid thirty sword film. So if you haven't watched it, you know you got to get out and watch it. If you haven't watched it in a while, you got to get out and watch it. Hell, if you just watch it, you might as well go watch it again after you listen to the podcast. Because this movie, yeah. for any issues I might have pointed out, if you can watch it with the proper context, I think it's a a masterpiece. <laughs> so that's where I stand. Nice. And now that we've taken care of that, let's head to the bounty board. After hours of working your way through this god's forsaken labyrinth, being assaulted by fairies, harried by puppets, given bad directions by stone faces in the wall, and being assaulted by just disgusting hands. You finally made it. You've made it all the way to the center of the labyrinth, to the Goblin City. Just outside the city gate, though, you see a board. And written across the top is... Bounties? Hey, guys. There's something about this movie. Oh, yeah? What is it? It reminds me of a friend. What friend? A friend named Larry. Oh, Larry. A friend with the power. What power? The power of friendship. What ship? Kinship. It reminds me of a friend. Well, our friend Larry has a special day today. It's his birthday. Well, how old is he? And we all want him to know that we love him. And it's a lot. Yeah, it's a fuck ton. He's a special dude. What should our birthday song include? 
His great smile. His radical style. His love of fantasy. And we all say birthday. Happy birthday to Larry. Happy birthday to Larry. Happy birthday to Larry. We wish our friend a special day of laughing, singing, fun, and play. Woohoo! Yeah! Happy birthday! Happy birthday! Happy birthday! Happy birthday, Larry. And now, let's rewrite some history. This is Rewriting History, the part of the podcast where we take the movie we just watched and come up with a sequel or a reboot or a spin-off or a cinematic universe or just whatever. So guys, what do we got this week for Labyrinth? So I've got an idea for a sequel, right? I love it already. <laughs> Labyrinth 2, colon, The Other Labyrinth. There's a set of, let's say, twins. And oh. they always... Oh, like two. Yeah, two sets of twins, right? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so this is Labyrinth 4. Yeah. <laughs> no, but so there are these twins, right? And they they are resentful of each other because at school they get picked on because everyone gets them mixed up, you know, okay. stuff like that. And they feel like they have no individuality. So they lash out at each other all the time. And then they both kind of come to this argument that is really bad. And... Are they Sarah's kids? Oh, well, Maya, that's pretty darn good. I was thinking they get into this fight and they wish they they like say at the same time, like, I wish you would just go away. Right. Something like that. OK. Yeah. I wish the yep. goblins would take you away. Yeah. And then suddenly the lights go out and the moonlight comes in and glitters shining through. And then grown-up Sarah appears in a whimsical gown. Oh! Okay, well, this is good, too. Yeah. Okay, Ooh. I see. Yeah. Ooh. Okay. And she's like, so you're sick of each other, huh? Nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that means, Jack, your interpretation is that she actually never escaped the labyrinth? Yeah. My interpretation is when she defeated Jareth and all the friends came over to her house, right? That was him, like, relinquishing the power and the ownership of the labyrinth to her, right? Okay. And so she figures this out. And then she kind of is inspired by what Jareth did as, like, a form of helping others, right? As, yeah. like, a trial. And so she separates them on opposite sides of this new labyrinth. And she's like, you know... You'll, you'll, maybe you'll never see home again unless you make up and, like, find your sibling. And they're on opposite ends of the labyrinth. And she's like, what you're looking for is at the center. And then they're both working their way to each other. Nice. I love that. Oh, man, I and love this. Now, I want to intersperse the scenes of both twins working towards each other and using their cleverness and everything with the backstory of how Sarah 
became the Goblin Queen. Yeah, like when we show, when we get to see her maybe watching their progress through a magic mirror or something, we could kind of get some context clues with some objects around her like we do for the from the first movie of the objects in her bedroom. Yes, that that too. I mean, that's that's good actually. That is probably more in line with the storytelling of this movie. I was going to say scenes of of her life, but maybe the clues is a much better approach. Maybe the traps that she puts them through could be clues to what led her to become the queen too. I like that. I like the more kind of subtle storytelling without the need to like bludgeon people with these flashback scenes. Yeah. I mean so many movies do flashback scenes. And I don't necessarily mind them all the time, but I think I like the context clues more. Yeah, and I think a lot of the tests that can make these twins value each other are like they get put in situations where it plays up their individual strengths a lot. So they're like, yeah, see, like, I'm pretty good. And then when they start feeling really, like, confident in their own abilities, they come across a test that favors the strength of the other twin more. And then they realize that it would be so much easier if they had that other person with them. And so incrementally, they start regretting more getting rid of the other person. And they have to try to overcome the test the way they think their sibling would, perhaps. And yes. use the skills they know their sibling has. And maybe they don't do it as well, but they have to learn to appreciate the skills the other person brings to the relationship. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. I love it. And... Now that Jareth is gone, maybe a lot of the goblins revert back to these, like, little kid forms where they aged, uh, like, slightly slower. Or one of the twins meets, like, an adult, right, who is very lonely. And they're like, you know, I used to always fight with my sibling. And then I got trapped here by the last owner of the labyrinth. And now all I want is to see my family again, you know, some oh, horror wow. story of this lonely person that lost it all because they couldn't learn their lesson, right? Well, be and because they, somebody cursed them to be sent to the labyrinth. Yeah. And I would like it if the sibling they come across tells them, like, well, we could travel together, you know, and maybe you could find a way out with us. And they could start to oh, collect man. some of the lost people. How would that former recovered goblin fit into the regular world after living life in the labyrinth where everything is so bizarre for their entire, like, cognizant life? I don't know. I don't know how well adapted these former goblins would be to life outside. Well, they aged more slowly, so... Oh my god, that's like a horror story waiting to happen. Or maybe they'll just learn to kind of find their own niche and power within the labyrinth. Well, we, yeah, we can have that scene at the end where, like, the twins are saying, you should come with us, and, and like, you know, it's the, the countdown, like, the portal is closing, and, you know, the the former goblin's like, no, this is where I belong. This is my place, and I can make it better now for everyone else. I have learned from you these important lessons. Right. Yeah, and I like to think that's part of Sarah's plan also. Like when she got the labyrinth, these goblins turned into people again, 
and they're afraid of Sarah, right? Because she is, she was attacked by them. And so now that she's in charge, they kind of live in fear of her as like the new ruler. And so the ki- Sarah's goal is to help these kids, the twins, but it's also she has them come across these former goblins so that they can be taught that Sarah's not that bad and that they're try Sarah's trying to rebuild the city to accommodate these lost children who used to be goblins. And so through the former goblins helping the twins, they realize that it's okay for them to go back to this new city that Sarah's building for them. I love it. This is fantastic. I feel like it's a great expansion of the story from the first movie. Guys, well, we better get Jennifer Conley on the phone. I'm sure she is just waiting for this sweet script. Well, guys, are you ready for a side quest? Hell yeah! This is the side quest where we suggest another piece of fantasy media to check out after you've watched Labyrinth. And this week, I think we're going to suggest a card game called Once Upon a Time. What an original name, right? This is a storytelling card game where players are given hands of cards with different fairy tale prompts, and you start a story using your cards, and then other players can interrupt your story by playing a card that relates to something you just said to pick up the story where you just left off and continue it. And the point of the game is to be the first player to play all the story prompts from your hand. It's really fun. It's a little bit different from a lot of the co-op games we play, but it's not really super competitive. It's more just a fun thing to do with a group of friends who want to do some creative storytelling. We've played it with family. It's pretty entertaining. It's a lot of fun. And it really has big... Jim Henson vibes. Yeah. And like Brothers Graham and everything. Yeah, the card will have a prompt on it. And then you continue the prompt and keep going with the story and try to work in your uh, the prompts from your other cards. But yeah, like Jamie said, you can get interrupted if somebody thinks of a way to segue to their prompt. <laughs> yeah, but when like somebody kind of usurps your story, like it's it doesn't feel... Like, it's a gotcha moment. It's kind of fun, like, getting to see how creative people can be when they make connections between the things you say and the cards that are in their hands. It definitely feels like one of the most cooperative, competitive games there is. Yeah, it still feels like you're communally telling a story, and it's fun to hear what other people come up with. And especially if you pause for a few seconds, that is a sign and a rule in the game that somebody else can chime in right then if you have a pause and you can't think of the next thing to say. <laughs> and that helps you because you're like, oh shit, what do I do next? It also really adds to the replayability of the game since it's not going to be the same ever. Yeah. yeah. Hey, who knows? Maybe we'll uh, play a game of this on Twitch and live stream it for everybody to check out in the next couple of weeks here. That seems like a fun thing we could do. I'm down. Yeah. So 
check out our social media to see if this actually materializes and I'll try to make it happen. And on that note, we'd like to thank you all for joining us. If you enjoyed the show, why don't you jump on over to social media and <laughs> <laughs> look for us at Swords and Satire on Twitter and Instagram. Follow us. Leave some comments. If you're really enjoying the show, then you can head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a sweet, sweet five-star review. Tell us your favorite part about David Bowie. And don't forget to join the Swords and Satire Facebook group, where we share fun and creative ideas, and imagination lasts forever. Nice. <laughs> you can also email us if you still do that kind of thing. Uh, at swordsandsatire at gmail.com. And please, if you feel compelled to become a supporter of the show, follow us on Patreon and become a patron. That is the best way to get in touch with us. The most direct route. Yeah, we provide extra content, like ep uh, mini episodes and special episodes and fun posts of us in costume and you get to vote on a movie that we watch if you're in a certain tier. Lots of fun stuff. Well, that about does it. I think I'm going to head back into my goblin castle at the center of my creepy labyrinth. But until next time, Hail Crom! Crom!